We're going to uh, go ahead now and turn into the scriptures, continuing our series in the book of Exodus. If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through chapter 7, 15. And I want to start our time this morning. We don't always do it this way, but I want to just read the majority uh, of this passage together. I highly encourage you to read along or follow along if you have an actual Bible or pull up the Bible app or just type in Exodus chapter 6. It will come up. Let's go ahead and read that together. Exodus 6 verse 2. Then God spoke to Moses, telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I'm going to pause there for just a second. As we read this, I want you to do a couple things. I think it's really helpful to read just a larger portion of the scripture so that we can see the big picture of what's going on. But as we do that, start to look for the, the rhythms, the patterns, the themes that the author of Exodus purposefully is putting in there for us to, to grab a hold of. We continue in verse 6. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh. And I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go from this land. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me since I am such a poor speaker? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them commands concerning both the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. Then we have a genealogy from uh, verse 14 through 25. I'm not going to read that. That is important, though. We're going to come back to it because all we'd really be doing is mispronouncing names that are hard to pronounce. So we're going to come back to that and talk about it, but we're not going to read it. Verse 26. It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I am telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7, the Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand on Egypt and bring the divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out of the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. There's quite a bit that, that happens in this chapter and a half. Five things in particular that I uh, want to point out and then we'll talk about briefly. Number one, Moses and Aaron's family is a mess. We didn't read this part. This was in the genealogy. I don't know if you've ever been reading through the scriptures and you come to this long list of names and this guy was the son of this guy, the son of this guy, and whoever bore him and all on and on and on. And you're going, what's the, what's the purpose of this? Each one's a little bit different and you really have to dive into the history to understand why that specific genealogy is there. But this one is actually pretty fascinating. The most likely reason that we have this genealogy is to trace uh, Aaron and Moses as brothers, their family history, and really to show that they have absolutely no business being leaders in this community. What, what the genealogy tells us is that they were not a part of the stud clans of Israel. They were a part of the weakest, kind of lamest clans of Israel. And even within those clans, not the strong ones, but the weak ones, they weren't part of the strongest of the weak clans. They're kind of the weakest of the weak. They're not the first or second or third choice of leaders. The Israelite community would not have looked out and said, wow, those two over there, they would be great leaders. We'd follow them. They'd look out and be like, those two. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I trust following them anywhere. And a matter of fact, they've only gotten into trouble, so why would we do this? Well, Moses has been commissioned to, to lead probably millions of people out of Egypt. That word divisions that we read is an uh, army type of term, that they're organized into massive numbers so that they can leave in an organized fashion. And there's very little reason for anybody, Moses and Aaron included, to have confidence in them to be the leaders of this community. Their families riddled with leadership failures, moral failures, all kinds of failures really is all they have going on. And that matters. But it isn't what mattered most. What matters most was that God called them, that God chose them, and that God would be with them. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at uh, five different components here in this chapter and a half. They're significant things, the real issues, the real struggles that would have caused, it, caused confusion and pain and, and questions and hurt and a desire to not do what God said to do. And all of those things were real and mattered, yet they weren't what mattered most. And eventually, as crazy as it sounds, and it's the same thing in our lives, there would come a day when this whole massive Israelite nation and family would look back and those major things, significant things going on in this moment wouldn't even matter much. Because what God was doing would prevail. And there's all kinds of things going on in our lives that seem unbelievably significant. It seems like nothing else will ever matter. Or a bunch of little things that put together can seem significant. And they matter much, and they do. And God hears those things. 
But believe it or not, as crazy as it sounds, when we're following Yahweh God, we will get to a point, there will come a day when we will look back. And though it seemed like those are the only things in the world that mattered, we'll look back and go, you know what? Those actually didn't matter much. They certainly didn't matter most in comparison to what Yahweh God was doing because what he's doing always prevails. First and foremost, Moses and Aaron's family was a mess. They had no business leading. Number two, Moses is filled with all kinds of doubts. Doubts about Pharaoh, doubts about himself, doubts uh, about God. I want to reread uh, verses 11 and 12 in chapter 6. But Moses said in the Lord's presence, can you imagine having an actual conversation with God in this way? He goes, if the Israelites will not listen to me, then how will Pharaoh listen to me? Since I am such a poor speaker, he's looking at God and saying, God, you don't have a clue what you're doing. Have we not been here time and time again? He will not listen. They will not follow. Do you not know my family history? God's going, yes, you're right. I know. Yes, you're right. I know. Yes, you're right. That matters, but it doesn't matter most, and eventually it won't matter much because what I'm doing is what matters most, and what I'm doing will be what prevails. We read uh, the same thing in verses uh, 28 and 30. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I'm telling you. But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses is filled with all kinds of insecurities and excuses. He doesn't really trust God all that much in this moment, or at least he doesn't want to trust God. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever questioned what in the world God could possibly be thinking? Have you ever been filled with insecurities and doubts? and questions, and you just want to go the opposite way. That's where Moses was, and that's a legitimate hard place, significantly hard place to be. Over time, Moses would learn to listen to that voice, even when he didn't trust it, and then he'd fail and stumble, but again and again, over time, he'd learn that God is always faithful. Whatever was going on in the moment mattered, but it didn't matter most because what God was doing mattered most. And there would be a day Moses looked back at this time and this conversation with God before going back to Pharaoh for round three and go, you know what, all my fears and doubts didn't matter that much. Third significant thing that's going on here is that Israel was literally too out of breath to listen to God. Look at uh, verses six through nine in chapter six. God says, therefore, tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh. And I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh your God who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you out to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses told this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. That phrase, broken spirit and hard labor, in the Hebrew, kind of more so symbolizes or literally means to be out of breath. Have you ever sprinted really hard after something or chased or exercised or for some reason you are exhausted and out of breath or you're having a panic attack or whatever it might be? You're not very good at listening and thinking clearly in those times. Pharaoh knew what he was doing. 
We talked about this last week. His plan was work them so hard that they would not be thinking about revolution and freedom. The only thing they would be thinking about was survival. Literally, they were occupied constantly with how they would get their next breath. That's all that was on their mind. So Moses and God come along, and they don't care. And what's fascinating about it in this passage is that they're not blamed for that. They're not ridiculed for it. God isn't saying, oh, they should have heard. He's just stating this as a real significant fact. What they were facing, this oppression and abuse physically, impacted them spiritually and relationally. I think at times we don't give enough merit to how our physical reality impacts our physical and spiritual and relational reality. God does that here. He's giving us freedom to recognize it is all connected. That's how he made us human, where all of these different components of our lives are not compartmentalized, but they're complexly integrated. So they couldn't even hear God. That mattered, and it was really significant, and they were in an unbelievably horrendous, hard place. But they would look back, not too long from now, actually, and they would go, that's not what mattered most, because Yahweh was moving in my life. Move on to number four. There are other real powers in this world, but none that will eventually not be consumed by God's power. Look at verses 10 through 12 in chapter 7 here. It seems kind of like a just odd part of the, the scriptures, but it's pretty informative. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 73. When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. There's a whole lot we could talk about there, but there's one most significant point we need to see. There are other real powers in this world. There were then, and there are now. There are evil powers that are real and significant. The, the scriptures say that Satan is seeking to lie, kill, and destroy. He's prowling around like a lion, and he's not alone. The occult practices that were described here, those types of things still go on today. We're not to hide from them. We're not to pretend they don't exist. What we're to do is recognize, though, that God's power will ultimately consume all other powers. And so even though that's a significant reality, and people at different points in time, some of you even, are or will be oppressed by other real evil forces, we can know that eventually God's power will consume those other forces. So we're not called to fear, but we're called to step into trusting Yahweh because what he's doing, once again, is what matters most. Finally, number five, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Look at uh, Chapter 7, verse 13. However, Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When you see him walking out of the water, stand ready to meet him by the bank of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a snake. I think this is one of the most significant questions that comes about when you read Exodus. How could a good God harden Pharaoh's heart? How could God cause his heart to become harder and then blame him for that? And really, that's just not 
what is happening. What's happening here is that Pharaoh already had a hard and calloused heart. Pharaoh himself had hardened his heart and calloused it. And then what God did was extend the degree to which Pharaoh's heart was calloused and hard. He made it worse intentionally to make a point. It's kind of like when some of my kids get into like an epic tantrum kind of a thing and they start screaming because they didn't get ice cream and they wanted it or they didn't get to pick which show they watched or whatever it was. And all of a sudden it's like the world's ending and they're screaming at me. So I'll take them to their room and sometimes I'll hold them and then I'll kind of just spur it on a little bit. I'll go, you know what? I think if you scream just a little bit louder, you're almost there. Just volume a couple notches more. I bet then you'll probably convince me and change my mind. Just try it. Go ahead. Right now, just scream a little bit louder, and they'll try it. I'll go, you know what? I was wrong. I'm sorry. A little bit more. Like, you're throwing a temper tantrum, but there's not enough temper built into the tantrum, so add a little bit more, and I'm sure at that point I'll be convinced that you're right, and I'm wrong. It's just not loud enough. You just got to do it a little bit more. And so I increase it, and they add more temper. And all of a sudden... They just shut up, and they get quiet, and they're like, oh, wow, me screaming's not doing anything. And I make a point by increasing what they're already doing. That's what God's doing here. He's not causing Pharaoh to do something he wasn't already doing. This was already in process. God just increases what Pharaoh's doing because he's putting himself and Pharaoh on display. Pharaoh had already insulted him, saying, who is Yahweh? There's no reason to trust and follow and love and worship this God. And so God says, okay, let me increase what you already do. Let's put this on display for the whole world to see that you're not in control. That the louder you scream and the harder you try, the more you lose control because I'm the only one with true power. Five fairly, fairly significant things that happen in this passage, all different yet interrelated, complexly intertwined. They all mattered. They were all real. They were all significant. They couldn't be ignored, and God wouldn't want his people to ignore the real things going on in their lives. Just like for you and I today, God does not ever ask you to ignore the real things going on in your life, good or bad. He's never going to ask you to pretend things are not happening. What he does ask us, though, is to trust that through those, he's competent and caring that through those things that do matter, we can recognize they don't matter much once we get to a point where we can know what he's doing will ultimately prevail. Doesn't belittle or undermine what's happening, but it gives us perspective to how big and great and loving our God is in the midst of real things going on in our lives. The, uh, the past few weeks for me personally have been pretty... Uh, Entertaining is the word I'm going to, uh, going to use. Chelsea loves stand-up comedians, and I actually don't like them at all. But every now and then, we'll, we'll lay in bed or something and watch something. And we were watching uh, Nate Bargetze, and he was talking about getting into a fight with his wife. And he talked about being in a one-hall uh, house, is what he called it. And he's like, you know, it's one of those, those fights where you just stop talking, and then you walk by each other, and there's not enough room to deal with the awkward timing, so you just go excuse me, ma'am, and keep walking. Then he says he walks up onto the couch and the TV's on and goes, ma'am, are you watching this? I just wasn't sure. And you pretend to be strangers. And we kind of had something like that recently. I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know why all of these 
things kind of poured on us just a little bit in the past few weeks. It wasn't just one thing. It was multiple. And it wasn't just related to marriage. Matter of fact, I think it actually all started kind of or pinpointed at this one dinner we had. Chelsea and I and two of our very best friends that we love dearly and vacation with, we went to this dinner to celebrate his birthday. And it was great. We were laughing and telling stories and reminiscing and planning future trips. And life was really, really good. Until all of a sudden, we uh, had a little disagreement. Something got brought up, and now the conversation was thick and intense and very different than I expected. And the night never recovered. And then Chelsea and I drive home, and it wasn't terrible. It's not like anybody hated each other. It was just weird. And Chelsea and I get home, and we're sitting on our bed talking about it a little bit. And then our kids are asleep, and I get a text from one of those people that we were at dinner with, and it was a, a pretty long kind of apology. And I don't get anxious about hardly anything in life, but I do get anxious about responding to my text messages, which is a terrible habit. And so I read it, and it was kind of serious. And so I started to, to respond, and it took me a while to really like understand what was being said and formulate an appropriate response. And I did that, thinking I'm a great person to respond and communicate effectively. And in the middle of that, I didn't really notice. My wife left the room and went into the living room. So it took me a few minutes to respond to this text. And I get to the couch, and there's Chelsea sitting there, not super happy, and I go, hey, Why'd you leave? She's like, because we were talking, and apparently the other person's more important than me. I said, oh, <laughs> sorry about that. And I realized, and I, I repented and adjusted. I said, that was not right of me. I am sorry about that. I shouldn't have. I should have told you, hey, here's what just came in. Do you mind if I respond really quick? And I did not communicate effectively. And so because I did such a great job as a, a husband in that moment of repenting and communicating so clearly, I thought, snap of a finger, we'd be right back where we were and things would be great. But she was still not happy, which I didn't understand. And so eventually the night kind of just continued in silence. We went to bed. It wasn't terrible, but really wasn't good. Woke up the next morning. I shouldn't actually have said we woke up. I don't know that I ever went to sleep because simultaneously, my, uh, my baby girl and my oldest girl, they, they share a room. And the baby girl's still figuring out how to sleep through the night. And so every now and then she wakes up. And when she wakes up crying, the older girl wakes up crying. And when the older girl wakes up crying, she like turns back into the two-year-old version of herself. Now everyone's crying and I want to cry and no one's sleeping. It's terrible. And we're going on 12 days of this. I don't know if you've ever been there or remember it, or maybe someday you'll be there. Who knows? Some people can function without sleep. I am not one of them. I turn into an evil, zombie, not functioning kind of human. No wonder Chelsea was struggling with me throughout these two weeks. And so I, uh, again, thinking I was a really effectively communicating, thoughtful husband, I went up to her and I said, after not sleeping or waking up, Babe, we have to do something. Like, I, I cannot do another night of this, going on night 12. I don't care what we do. Here's some options. Just pick one, but we got to move one of the girls out of here. We have to do something. I can't function. I thought I communicated well. That's not what she heard. Maybe you've experienced that in communications, especially marriage. That's what I thought I said. What she heard was, I wish we never would have had kids and my life is terrible. I don't know how things progressed so fastly. I didn't find this out till like 48 hours either. So there was a lot of silence going on. So then she lovingly actually responded. What she said was, hey, don't worry about it. I know you need to sleep. I understand that. I'll take care of all the crying kids. Just get some sleep and kill this zombie version of you and come back normal, please. That's not what I heard, though. 
What I heard was something like, I don't care that you don't sleep. I designed the rooms how I designed them, and we just have to get through it. I'm thinking, what in the world? This is awful. So I bought a cot. I thought that was the smartest thing to do. I went on Amazon, and I've been wanting a cot for a while because I like to sleep outside under the stars. This time of year, it's great. And I thought, this solves all solutions. I communicated very effectively as a husband. She communicated back to me that she doesn't care, so I might as well sleep outside. Buy a cot. Amazon Prime's not two-day shipping anymore. It's like two going on 14. You never really know what's going to happen. So I'm waiting night after night. In the meantime, I had like five different times of playing mediator for different people going through different conflicts. I had some people that I don't really know very well not like things I've done. I had a dear friend not like some things I said, and we had to have a fairly intense but good conversation uh, about that. I went to the, the Suns game seven against the Mavericks, and it was like death. I was depressed about that for a while. And then when I got back to my office, Jeremy put a Dallas Maverick street sign in my office, which was really messed up. Things weren't great. Then the cot finally arrives at my house, right? And I'm like, thank God. I'm just a few more hours away from some peace and quiet, just me and the stars, nothing else. I open up my cot like a kid at Christmas. I'm excited. And I pull it out, and I like kind of push on it and test. It's like perfect, firm, a little bit. Cushy, it's great. I laid down on it. It said it'll hold 375 pounds. I'm like, this is good. It had great reviews. I laid down. Both my head and my toes are hanging off opposite edges. I'm like, how is this even possible? Like, it didn't say it was a kid's cot. I don't fit. And I'm, I'm not very happy at this point because I'm on a roll. I'm a few weeks in. Chelsea and I can't communicate. Feels like everybody's angry, and I don't even have a bed to sleep on outside. I'm going, what in the world? Here's the reason I share that. None of it really matters. And that's actually what I told Chelsea on day 10 or whatever. We sat in uh, one of our, our boys' rooms. And boys, I don't have multiple boys. I don't know how to talk in our boys' room. And I'm like, you know what? We're going to go to a wedding in like three hours. Do you remember 10 years ago when we took vows? This is why we made vows. We said, I do to this moment because things get uncomfortable and hard. But guess what? Maybe it's two hours from now, I hope. Maybe it's two days from now or two months from now. I don't know, but we will look back at this, and it won't matter very much because we're committed to this, and we'll communicate. <laughs> I've got a lot to learn and figure out, and we'll do that together. And that's the beauty of following the God that we do. That's the point of this passage. There's a whole lot going on. feels like lately there's a lot going on in my life. Some things are real and matter. Probably we're actually way more dramatic than I made it seem. And some don't matter that much. There's real things in your life going on. It could be a financial question or fear or crisis, a massive relationship change, something really terrible that's happened, a health concern. You know your story, I don't. But I am confident of this. I do know this. If we fast forward, because we follow Jesus, we will be able to look back and go, that really did matter. But compared to what Yahweh God was doing, it did not matter anywhere near most because what he does always prevails. I want to point out one more thing before we close. I don't know if you noticed when we first read the passage, and I talked about this, I think in chapter 3, there's this pattern that God says. There's seven I wills. It's kind of like marriage vows. God says this if we pull up that slide. I will bring you out of oppression. 
He says, I will free you. He says, I will redeem you. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to a flourishing home. I will give to you. There's very few you wills, actually, in the scriptures. This is the gospel. God created, God forgives, God saves, God loves, God guides, God restores, God redeems, God heals. He will. The I wills, the verbs belong to our God, not us. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news about following Jesus. Whatever is going on in your life or whatever will go on in your life, you can know it matters. And God believes it matters. He doesn't pretend it doesn't, but it doesn't matter most because there will be a day we look back at it and say, oh, once again, he was faithful. Oh, once again, he prevailed. Oh, once again, he is worthy of trust always, no matter the moment. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're with us and for us. Thank you that you encourage us to be vulnerable and free and honest and to embrace the fact that you're the one in charge, that you've made yourself the responsible party, that you're the leader and we get to follow. And even when we stumble and are terrible at following, you'll pick us right up. You are good. Holy Spirit, may you overwhelm us with the knowledge of your love and goodness. May you be the one to lead us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for our six weeks of summer as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. Glad that you were able to tune in. Um, if you haven't yet, jump over to restorationaz.org. We'd love to get connected with you, get to know a little bit about you. You can also um, see who we are, what we're about, and um, yeah, begin the journey. And um, if you haven't gotten plugged into a local congregation yet, we just uh, that's something that we really, really value. Um, and restoration definitely does not need to be the place, but um, for you to get plugged in somewhere we feel like is really, really important. So um, be prayerful and mindful about that and consider that. And um, yeah, we say this every week, but we mean it. Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.